can you lose your stability? Can you lose your stability? Now, you probably realize that that might be one of the things that's so vexing about getting older, the idea of physically losing your stability. And that's why the experts tell us to brush your teeth standing on one leg. Try it. Apparently, it helps. But the question I'm asking is, as a Christian, can you lose your stability? Well, the short answer is yes, you can. Writing this last letter to the churches, Peter's aim is about preventing faithful Christians from losing their stability. Now, I've said it earlier, that the letter almost fits on just two pages here of our Bibles. But look at the last couple of verses that are beyond that um, at the end of chapter 3. Just flick over, if you would, to chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. This helps us get to Peter's aim here. He says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Now, the real danger you'll have seen for Christians, as apostles like Peter or Paul step off the stage of history, the danger is that genuine Christians would get carried away. Isn't that a really awful picture, being carried away? With what? Well, with the error of lawless people and lose their own stability. It's an awful picture because it's a terrible, terrible danger. See, yes, Christians can lose their stability. And that threat won't just come from the outside. This is very interesting. Remember 1 Peter, there was external pressure, persecution on the church, and Peter addressed that in the first letter. Well, look at chapter 2 here in 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 1. You see, there are false teachers inside, subtly emerging from among inside the churches, quietly, subtly, destabilizing from within. Secret of subversion, if you like, weakening the churches, weakening Christians. This very short letter isn't a general, that's it, you can do it, note of encouragement. Instead, it's a, it, there's a really sobering set of reminders here as we read it. And it's aimed, you see, to stir us up, to remind us, um, those in the post-apostolic era, that is, those, um, the first readers of the letter, as Peter moved away and, and passed on into glory, but also us, you see, we're, we're living after the apostles. And so, this letter stirs us up to hold on, helps us to hold on, and holding on to do what he instructs us to do in chapter 3, verse 18. What does he say to do in verse 18? Well, there's that warning about not being destabilized, but look at verse 18. Grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Can you lose your stability? Well, yes. So, you'll have to consider two things as we read 2 Peter. Getting stability and growing. Are you? Are you getting stability as a Christian? 
Are you growing as a Christian? Well, that's what our series is pointed uh, to get us to think about. Now, you can see that focus on stability and growth for Christians at the end of the letter, and that's what we've been looking at, but it's also right here at the start of the letter too. You might have picked up on it as as Lindsay read in the opening lines. And here's what we're going to see as Peter presses the need for stability and growth. Here's what we're going to see. Peter sets out a who, what, how, and where for Christian stability. So that's where we're headed. Four things. A who, what, how, and where for Christian stability. And we're going to track it in these opening 11 verses. Well, firstly then, Peter establishes who to be devoted to? Who? To whom? Who should we be devoted to as Christians? Verses 1 and 2, and then in verse 11. We'll read it in a minute, but at the start, there's a really remarkable statement. You see, it acknowledges that second-gen Christians have obtained, and have a look at those words, have obtained a faith of equal standing to those of the first-gen the apostles like Peter, who actually knew Jesus. Jesus and Jesus's righteousness had provided that equal standing, that faith of equal standing. That's a really remarkable thing to say. You've got something equal to what the apostles had like Peter. And how? Well, Jesus's righteousness. And Jesus is described here not just as Jesus of Nazareth, but look, powerfully he's described as our God and Savior. His righteousness, our God and Savior, he underwrote the whole deal whereby you get to be Christians. Isn't that quite remarkable? And so for Christians like Peter himself, we can see he's devoted to Jesus Christ. Look how he describes himself, an apostle, a servant, an apostle of Christ, verse 1. And so also for Christians who hear the gospel as the second generation after the apostles, and there should only ever be two generations of Christians, the first, the apostles, and the ones that they handed the message to, the second gen. And yet we have equal, even though we live after the apostles, we have a faith of equal standing, all because of Jesus' righteousness. Now, that should strengthen and encourage us from the outset. And it suggests that stability, as a Christian, is going to be possible only for those Christians who stay devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, it's possible to be a kind of Christian who's not so devoted to Jesus Christ. But Peter wants it that grace and peace would be, and look at this phrase here in verse 2, multiplied to them multiplied to them in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. And he's going to draw that out in a moment. He wants Christians to know growth in their devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you devoted to Jesus? You know, without that kind of devotion to the Lord Jesus, if we make less of Jesus, think of what's less than devotion, kind of sort of looking in his direction every so often. If we make less of the Lord Jesus, either in our personal lives or our church life, stability will suffer. I spotted one of you arriving this morning. I hadn't planned to say this, but they were carrying um, a stability device for someone to keep them from falling over. Isn't that interesting? Coming to church with a stability device. 
Someone's lending it to someone for their use. But in some ways, that's what we do as we come and devote ourselves and our lives to the Lord Jesus. We get stability from God's word, from each other, devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. But if he's made less of, well, that stability is going to suffer. We're going to fall. You see, instead, Peter unambiguously here, he elevates the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see that? That's the vision behind our youth group name. I said I'd mention it. Elevate. A club's name that should translate into our thinking about the Lord Jesus. If you're a teenager, would you elevate the Lord Jesus? Be devoted to him in your life. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, his righteousness at the cross bought you from sin and death to life. That's what Jesus' righteousness did. He's given you life. Give him your devotion. Will you do that? That's what the Bible calls us to. That could be your refreshed prayer as you brush your teeth morning and evening. Stand on your leg if you like, one leg, but pray that you'd be devoted to the Lord Jesus, even as you do those regular rhythms like brushing your teeth. As you consider the Lord Jesus Christ's divinity, he's truly God our Savior, God and Savior, Jesus Christ, verse 1. His salvation extended to us. Let's be devoted to him. Well, that's something, that's the who to be devoted to. Well, next Peter gives us what to hold on to, verses 3 to 4. Let's read them, verses 3 to 4. It's a really long sentence, and we can get sort of lost in the middle, but let's try and track with what it's saying. His divine power, God's divine power, Peter writes, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now remember, this is Peter the apostle writing. Let's follow what he's saying. He says, God has given to us. Here in the first instance, Peter's talking about himself and the other apostles. Well, what has God given them? Have a look. God has given all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. In other words, what has God given? He's given resources. Peter tells Christians, look what we got from Christ, through Christ and his righteousness from God. We've got resources, all things that pertain to life and godliness, amazing resources, a new existence, a new calling, a new way of life, and all the resources I'm going to need to follow it through. You see, it's one thing giving you a, a something to help you, and then you have to get the rest yourself. No, no, actually, God has given all that's required, all the resources needed to live this life. Now, next in verse 4, Peter describes what else the apostles like him in the first instance had been given. Have a look. Verse 4 describes his precious and very great promises. So, in other words, God's glory and excellence have provided for the apostles like Peter in the first instance his precious and very great promises. Not just resources for the present, you see, but resources for the future. Promises. And they're not just promises, they're precious and very great. And the apostles were given these. 
And now look how Peter and the apostles have passed them on. They didn't just keep them for themselves, but what did they do? He has granted to us, have a look, follow the argument, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you, the Christians of the second generation, may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. These precious promises, very great promises, concerned the future. They were pointed in that direction. And in 2 Peter, we learn that the false teachers were attacking the promise of Christ's return, specifically. Would Jesus return like he said he would? And the false teachers were saying, no, they, he won't. You see, promises that the apostles had passed on to the Christians who came after them were being attacked, even though they were precious and very great. They included, you see, the fact that Christians would one day reach that finish line when Christ himself would return and they would themselves go to be with him. They would become, have a look how it puts it here, partakers of the divine nature. In other words, they would finally become like Christ after his return. But the false teachers were saying that Jesus would not return. And yet these are the very promises, the very things that Christians need to hold on to. Whenever you're feeling unstable, we always say reach out and, and, and grab onto something. Hold onto something. Well, not this because it's sort of going up and down, but find something sturdy and hold on to it. Well, Christians, Peter says, need to hold on to these kind of promises. They're great and they're, uh, well, they're very great. They're precious. And right at the start, it's as if Peter tells them, this is what you're going to need to hold on to. The promises given by God in his goodness and passed on to you. Hold on to them, Christians. Hold on to them. Now, I want you to think about this. People today, even some so-called Christians, are challenging and undermining the way the Bible speaks of the future. Isn't that true? Some Christians are saying, well, the Bible kind of says that, but... And there's an undermining going on. The return of the Lord Jesus. And if that undermining means that we start to loosen our grasp on what the Bible says, what God has promised then we're going to lose stability. And in worst cases, we're going to get ourselves carried away altogether. It's interesting, isn't it? If you take your eyes off what the Bible promises and start to undermine them or pick and choose which ones might be true, before long, you're sort of stumbling around all over the shop. Well, the implications of that, taking your eyes off the return of Jesus, they start to become clear to you. What happens then if you take your eyes off the the prize, if you like, the very end of salvation history. Well, if people undermine that Jesus will, re will return and say he won't, and that means then that there's no final judgment, does that mean no one will have to give an account to the Lord Jesus? Well, what does that do to accountability now? Well, if we deny what's going to happen, we can live however we want. It's interesting, isn't it? That's the implication. Without a firm grasp on the apostolic teaching, the Lord's return, what seeps into churches and Christian life is living however we like. Moral confusion, you might call it. Moral collapse even. Absolute chaos. Christians saying you can live how you want and do whatever you like. 
No, you see, so Peter's reminder is about what to hold on to. God's precious and very great promises through which, and, and you'll have seen that, won't you? Through which we get to escape the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Isn't that interesting? Not just do it because we've taken our eyes of what, what's going to happen in the future, but we, will, we have escaped that and we will get to escape and over the finish line on that final day, that corruption in the world. We shouldn't be telling each other to wallow in it or die in it. It's corruption. We need to be so wary as Christians not to buy it when so-called Christian leaders and speakers and thinkers tell us to follow our own hearts, our own desires, live however we like. No, you see, listening to them will lead to stability issues, that's for sure. We have something to hold on to. And, and this, once you spot it, it comes up again and again and again in Second Peter. Um, look at chapter 1, verse 19 that we read near the start. Um, Peter writes, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you'll do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In other words, eyeing the dawn, eyeing the future, here's something to hold on to. God's word, his promises, the prophetic word, a lamp shining in a dark place. Go and find the lamp and get it back on again in your life, in our church, until the day comes. That's where we need to, to hold on to. That's what we need to hold on to. Devoted to Jesus, holding on to his precious promises. Well, the next thing, well, it should be clear then the length of what comes next from five to 10. And we'll move quickly here because it all makes sense now, doesn't it? How to spend your efforts. How are you going to spend your efforts, verse 5 to 10? Well, Peter um, lays it out. Here's where effort in the Christian life comes in. Not to earn your salvation, remember, but have a read from verse 5. For this very reason, for what he's just said, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so short-sighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Make every effort, verse 5. And then go right to the end of that little section. Be all the more diligent, verse 10. You see, we've learned here that as Christians, Christ has given us his righteousness, verse 1. We should be devoted to him like Peter and the apostles were. And he's provided all the resources, verse 3, present and future. And now armed with and holding on to these precious and very great promises of the return of the Lord Jesus and the apostolic teaching, here's a reminder that will spur us on on how we should live. Here's how to spend your effort, given what has happened. 
given what God has given you. Here's how to live. Make every effort. Be all the more diligent. So, so verse 5 isn't just sit in your faith and let go and let God. No, it's not. Look at verse 5 again. Live it out. Live out your faith with virtue. Give virtue or goodness. Supplement your faith with, with goodness. And then to that virtue, add knowledge. Don't just live like a good Christian. Learn things about your faith. It, it's, it's interesting how that follows, isn't it? Because if you're going to live it out, you're going to need to know more. Uh, Paul told Timothy to watch your life and watch your doctrine or watch your teaching. Watch that knowledge. Well, you're going to need to watch it and learn things. Learn about your faith. But you see, don't just learn about faith. Supplement that growing knowledge with self-control. You see, the tendency, if I get to know lots of stuff, I'm going to ram it down everyone's throat and be really annoying. No, no, have self-control with it. Self-control combined with a good knowledge of the Christian faith. Well, do you know what that's going to do? It's like sending deep shafts of stability in your life right down into a secure foundation about what we've been taught. And then self-control, not just once, but how often? Steadfastness. In other words, be self-controlled, not just once in a crisis, but every single time, all the time. Steadfastness, though, not how, about how great you are, but add to that godliness, reflecting who God is. And then make, make it a godliness that's got brotherly kindness attached to it. Nobody wants to be the sort of person that doesn't have any love or kindness to it. Add kindness and then love. That's quite a few steps, aren't they? But you can see where this fits, how this is going to keep you steady and secure. What's Peter saying about where to spend our efforts? In growing. Get growing, he says. Get growing. Grow as a Christian. And he picks it up, verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and, and are increasing, growing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities... He's just blind, so short-sighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Remember that taking your eyes off the prize? Well, there's also a sense in which Christians can take their eyes about what happened in the past. What did Jesus do for us on the cross? He forgave our sins. And, and all of a sudden, if you don't have a, an, an eye on the past and you don't have a eye on the future, guess what I'm doing? I'm all over the place. I'm falling all over the place. And Peter's saying, don't be like that. Grow. Get stability in the Christian life as you look forward and as you look back at what Christ did. He, he was cleansed from his former sins. You see, we can't be so short-sighted as Christians to think that Christ forgave my sins. That will anchor us in the Christian life. Stable and growing. Christians who aren't short-sighted. I'm, I'm terribly short-sighted. But as a Christian... My prayer is that I wouldn't be. Stable and growing Christians who can see that the Lord Jesus Christ in the past saved them from their sins and who will one day finally return to judge the world and bring them across the finish line, his people. And, and so it's clear where all of this is going, isn't it? Not short-sighted or blind. Where should you set your, your, your sights? Where should you set your sights as a Christian? Verse 11, have a look. For in this way, 
there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. On Christ. On our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Set your sights on him. That's where. Devoted to him. Holding on to the precious promises. Growing and setting our sights on him. You know, any one of us Christians could lose stability. Even the mature and the secure can at one time lose that stability. And especially when there are going to be threats within our own churches by those who will quietly ask us to take our eyes off Christ and to close your Bible and do something more fun. Those threats are coming at us all of the time. You know they are. But will you remain stable and growing? Well, let's with Peter remind each other who to be devoted to. Well, it's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, at the start and at verse 11 here. Let's remind ourselves what to hold on to. Well, it's God's precious and very great promises passed from the apostolic age, from Peter and Paul into our hands, the second geners, geners that we are. And let's remind each other how to spend our efforts, not indulging ourselves, but growing, growing from faith growing in the faith and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, that's the very last verse. Look back at verse 18 of chapter 3. But grow. Remember, you don't lose your own stability. But grow, verse 18, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. And then where to set our sights? Well, it's right there, isn't it? Setting our sights on him, the one who won our salvation, who bought us at the cross, and who won our future when he returns. Let's pray. Father, these reminders should stir us up, and we pray that they really would. We pray that as we get, our, get things straight in our minds, we would not be destabilized by the voices around us. No way. Instead, would we be devoted to the Lord Jesus in everything. Father, help us to grow. Growing because we're also holding on to your precious promises that you will return and judge the earth. And Father, help us to grow in all of these things so that we might be more stable in this generation. Father, all glory to Christ. May our eyes be on him, and we ask this in his precious name.